there's so many different ways to be an investor. Every way to commit capital to a growing company seems to be successful, right? But because we've wanted to focus on simplicity, like I think you can overextend yourself where the money management, the portfolio management, the investment management, while it's always a very important part of the job. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Hunter Walk. He is a partner at Homebrew and previously spent around a decade at Google. In this episode, we talk about how Homebrew started back in 2013, we go through some of Hunter's angel investing, how he became such a prolific writer and how that helps him as well go through Screen Door. Screen Door is a company he co-founded that's supporting emerging managers. We talk all about that program. They launched a $50 million fund to support GPs. And we talk about follow-on investing and Hunter's approach to that at Homebrew. All of that and much more in this episode. The show notes are at thevitalizedpodcast.com. Let's dive in. Hunter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I appreciate you taking the time. A lot of directions I want to go with this interview, but where I want to go back to is a time when you decided to finally start a VC firm. I know you had written a letter uh, online around having a one-year-old and wanting to make the switch, but take me through that decision to get out of Google and then launch uh, your own VC firm. Yeah, look, so there's nothing else I wish I was doing than homebrew, but it also wasn't clear that I was going to do venture at some point in my life. I, I was intrigued, I guess, intellectually maybe, by the job, but I, I just couldn't see myself being the fifth, seventh, you know, sixteenth partner at somebody's firm, like covering a set of spaces. And there's nothing really wrong with that. There's people who are excellent at that, right? So I've always tried to gravitate towards things that like I'm actually passionate about and maybe can make a difference at versus, you know, can just kind of check off the box. What I had sort of decided over the course of 2012 was that maybe I wanted to move from the doing to the helping side. So, you know, I sort of shorthand that as being outside of the org chart as opposed to inside the org chart. And I didn't know what that meant. I'd been making some angel investments. So maybe I was going to try just to do that, help out a little bit. I really enjoy writing. So maybe I could spend more time doing that. I, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that after nine, 10 years at Google that I was kind of ready to for that not to be my last job. You know, anytime you're at a company for a long period of time, even if it's not a bad place to be, I think you sort of owe yourself, you know, the the obligation to ask yourself like, do I want this to be my last job? And if the answer is no, then like at some point you have to leave, you know? And so convergence of things, both, you know, a daughter being born, which sort of helped me frame, you know, my own mentality as to like trying to lead by example for her and sort of trying new things and not just, you know, sitting in the corner office at Google for 20 years. But what really jarred it was uh, my partner at Homebrew, Sacha, leaving Twitter. Um, he, and I, he and I had worked together in the mid-2000s at Google and always wanted to work together again. And so when he left there, I had sort of mentally decided to leave Google, if not you know, sort of physically yet. And we started talking about what we wanted to do. And to be honest, like neither one of us were prioritizing venture. I think if we had gone our own ways, he was going to stay in the operating world, maybe start a company. And and I was going to do this like, you know, 2013 as a walkabout, you know, sort of figure out whether I could polymath my way, um, you know, through my 40s, 50s and 60s, I guess. But when we started talking, we just realized that we were never going to have the chance to start with a blank sheet of paper again together, right? We had spent a decade kind of like pitching one another on coming to do something that the other one was doing as opposed to starting with a blank sheet of paper. And what we realized that we were always so excited or, you know, we, we, we had been at companies during different phases, but the first three to five years were always just what gave us so much energy. And like, maybe we could be fortunate enough to spend like the rest of our careers 
working with companies in their first, you know, zero to five years um, and trying just to back, you know, sort of the right founders. And I don't mean the right founders and sort of like a pattern matching. I mean, founder market fit, founders who had a really strong vision for what they wanted to build and a reason for building it. And like, maybe we could just be force multipliers on that. Like maybe the capital was the cost of entry, right? You need capital, like you need oxygen, but you know, the whole like breathe to live, but don't live to breathe. Like what we really wanted to do was sort of, you know, write the check to gain entry to being able to help them. And that's how Homebrew came about. I guess we're sort of like nine years in. It's a very simple model. We make about eight to 10 investments a year where traditionally we're sort of doing, you know, zero to 2 million of somebody's first zero to five, right? So we're trying to be a meaningful investor. And while we're long-term, you know, stakeholders, we're long-term helpers, I really think it's that seed to series B where we kind of put in the most differentiated effort and try to get those folks to the point where, you know, they've got something that's, you know, now it's just a question of how big is it going to get, right? They've built the platform, product distribution and team, foundation is in place. They're growing as leaders. So they're also setting themselves up to be the long-term, you know, sort of CEO and executives of this company. And, um, and it's just been amazing. It's been so special. Venture is sort of the business model, but not the operating model in some ways. <laughs> With that too, so you mentioned how many investments you're making out of homebrew you know, per year. Are you doing a certain number of follow-ons, obviously opportunistic? I mean, what's that strategy look like for you guys too? There's so many different ways to be an investor, right? And especially in a bull market, which you know the last decade plus for technology has been that, every, every way to commit capital to a growing company seems to be successful, right? But we've sort of not grabbed you know, every nickel we could in some ways um, because we've wanted to focus on simplicity. Like I think you can overextend yourself where the money management, the portfolio management, the investment management while it's always a very important part of the job, the more different types of product SKUs you bring to market, the more things you're doing with you know, opportunity funds and SPVs and so on and so forth, sort of the more plates you know, that are spinning that you sort of are first and foremost obligated to make sure are still spinning, as opposed to like obligated to the companies and the people and spending time with them. So we've you know, been fortunate enough since early days to be you know, sort of quote unquote institutional LP backed endowments foundation. So we've always had access to sufficient capital to run our business model. But the way that we've thought about it is beyond that sort of initial investment in the seed round, let's write, you know, one or two additional checks, you know, sort of the A, the B. And obviously in some cases, if there's, you know, interim rounds, you know, we'll write a half check. Like, so it's, it's not a hard and fast rule, but that we don't need to, you know, leading growth rounds. We don't need to always hold on to our pro rata in a series D, series E, just because we can make some money or it looks like we might be able to say, make some money. When, when, when I want a founder to look at us, I want them to think of us very specifically as somebody who's going to be indispensable in terms of capital, partnership, and support during those first three to five years. And I want our LPs to like actually it to be quite simple for them to do the math on whether we're good investors or not. I want them just to be able to look at these funds and um, you know and calculate you know are we doing the job that we said we do. Now, of course. Every time we've raised a fund, it turns out we've sort of underraised because, you know, what's the line, like the Mike Tyson line, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Every VC has a spreadsheet until that spreadsheet hits market, right? And the market realities over those last 10 years also has been, it's been a great time to be a founder. Valuations are increasing, round size are increasing, so on and so forth. And so we've unintentionally kind of underraised every time. And we've earned the trust with our investors to be able to go back, reopen the funds a little bit, sometimes top them off, create an overage fund. Um, so we've always tried to sort of, you know, raise to the strategy not raised to the capacity or demand. If we did that, I think we'd be sitting on, you know, billions of AUM, which is, you know, a nice business model. If you want to build 
150 person you know, team. We never wanted to do that. We had no growth plan, no succession plan. We just wanted to be really, really good at um, you know, being your partner of choice for those first three to five years. And look, it's still early, but at least for the first fund, which was sort of 2013 to mid 2015 from an initial investment standpoint, we've got enough data back on that fund to suggest that we are pretty good at our job from both a founder facing and a investor facing, a, a LP facing standpoint. But we get up every day and you know work on those companies, work on the 2015 and beyond companies. Um, and I don't think we take anything for granted. There's two things you mentioned earlier I want to go back to. One being the angel investing before you launched the fund. What did it look like for you personally before you, you know, launched the fund with Homebrew, your angel investing pre- previously? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be sort of like double income, no kids, you know, at Google during, uh, you know, a time of growth. And so I had a little bit of extra capital where it it felt like um, that, you know, paying it forward as my friends started to started companies and sort of backing some of them would kind of be interesting. And if I, I didn't have a strategy to like index the best YC companies or prove a track record. It was, you know, maybe it was simpler times like 2007, 2008. Like we were, you know, it was much more naive then, I guess. But I did sort of think like, hey, look, maybe I'll make, you know, four to five investments a year between $10,000, dollars I'll assume it's all going to disappear. Like I'm not going to carry this mentally as net worth. And if it does all disappear, maybe at some point I'll stop doing this because it turns out I'm not very good at it. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you the actual motivation. I was in this operating role at YouTube that I absolutely loved, but running the the product team over there, the consumer product team, I was going so deep, but so narrow, uh, narrow in the sense of video, you know, social, but like mobile commerce was starting, you know, the, the, the iPhone had come out, like, you know, I had different vantage points on this, but I always had to look at it, you know, 95% of my day through the YouTube point of view. And it felt like angel investing would be a great way to learn, would be a great way if I, you know, picked some smart people who I knew to kind of do more than just catch up for coffee every six months, right? Like I could be on their cap table. I could try to help them, but I'd also learn. So for example, this incredibly smart guy, he runs a fund now, Lee Linden was starting this company called Karma. It was sort of a gifting app where you didn't need to know somebody's address or things like that. You just need to know a phone number. You could pick, you know, it was all this very cool thing. Facebook ended up acquiring it pre-IPO. So everyone did well, but I was just like, man, he's so smart. And I'd love to learn about mobile commerce because it sounds like this is going to be important. And so it just sort of happened naturally. I would sort of try to always set expectations about how much time I'd have. I didn't want to be social proof. I didn't want to just be like, you know, YouTube product lead, you know, type of thing, invest in your company. Like I actually wanted to try to help people, but I knew also that I was going to be sort of like the, you know, once a month conversation plus anything that you thought I had immediate feedback on. Like I couldn't be doing strategy sessions. And I'll tell you one funny story because now it's like these companies are so less, they care so much less about this. But back then there was like this, well, the Googler handbook says that you like have to get every angel investment approved by legal. And like, look, I love our legal team, but like, I was not doing that, especially when I saw Marissa Mayer like investing in Square and all this stuff. I'm like, that's not going to be competitive with Google Pay. Come on. I'm like, if, I make mean, trust me, if you trust me to run like this large product area, you can trust me, use my judgment to not like invest in stuff that's going to be competitive or derogatory or Google or whatever. And I always remember talking to some of my colleagues, other product managers who wanted to get involved in angel investing. They're like telling them, that they're like, "But it says you have. It says in the handbook you have to get all these cleared." And I'd look them right in the face. I'd be like, "I've never read the handbook." And they're like, "Oh no, I'll send you the link." I'm like, "No, don't send me the link. I've never read the handbook." I'm like, I, "You know, like, I'm like, can I spell it out? There's some degree of plausible deniability if I don't click on that thing." Like, you know. 
but it was a lot of fun. I think you know I've written about that it sort of helped me make some simple mistakes so that now when I'm an investor, I make more complex ones. The difference between like investing in somebody because you're thinking about how you'd build it versus really listening to them, social proof and heat and like being like, I don't get this, but all these other people would, are, you know, seem to be smart and like anything that I didn't, you know, anything that I didn't form my own opinion on, or I didn't really listen to the person about what they wanted to build as opposed to sort of inserting my own mind or like, I'm so good, I can coach them up or things like that. Like those were all disasters. Um, but everybody where it was like, I really believed in the person, they figured something out one way or the other, whether it was the original idea or, you know, something that they pivoted to. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, don't, I mean, you can put, you can put me in a different category than Fred. Like there's a few OGs and, and Fred is, Fred is one of them. One other thing you mentioned that I want to bring up. So there's a few different VCs, I feel like in this, this class, you could say, that did writing prolifically. Like you're one of them. I think I look at like Fred Wilson, USB. Like there's so many different ones that have done that. <laughs> He's absolutely an OG in that regard. For you though, how impactful was the writing for what you do as an investor, life in general? I'm just curious about how that's impacted. I've been blogging since the mid 2000s, I guess, right? So this wasn't about content marketing. It wasn't about, you know, deal flow. Everybody chooses how they want to express themselves. You know, I joke, I'm an, you know, introvert in real life and an extrovert behind the keyboard. And so I enjoy writing, I enjoy reading. And so I try to sort of hold myself to a standard where if I'm going to write about something, it's either because I think I have figured something out that might help somebody else out, or I'm trying to figure something out and there's people out there who are smarter than me. And maybe on that topic, and maybe that I can attract one of them. And so it's it, in both cases, it's not about page views. It's not about tech meme or, or hacker news or things like that. It's not about having a hot take on everything or being the definitive blog post about marketplaces or whatever. Like there's plenty of people who write really wonderfully thorough, well-researched type of things. I'm much more of the like no drafts, sit down and write, tumble it around in my head. When it feels like it's ready, you know, I'll sit down and write it. It's 500 to 750 words. And so it's, I think it started and hopefully it's continued very organically. Now there's two things that obviously I think um, even outside of that sort of you know purity um, has benefited me. The first was as actually a hiring manager. Um, when I was building the product team at YouTube, I was often trying to hire people who weren't necessarily interested in Google, right? Google was too big. And so I needed people to, to somehow know that whether they were going to be working directly for me or for a, you know through a skip level manager that like, that I, they felt like they could learn something from me maybe by working at YouTube. And that when I turned to them and said, look, don't go into Y Combinator. You're not ready to start a company. You're not really passionate about this idea. Give me two to three years. We'll turn you into a great product manager. Maybe you want to stay here. Maybe you want to go lead product somewhere else. Maybe you want to go start a company then. And whichever one you choose, I will help you. Like they needed, I think, to have one, a sense of who I was and two, like some credibility that you know, if part of the online discourse that like, oh yeah, this guy seems part of the flow, right? So I never understood why like hiring managers at large companies didn't find ways to build personal brand, not for their own self-promotion, but because like, I think it just helps in attracting talent. Um, I guess similarly, um, for what I think about for um, Homebrew is that maybe it serves as mutual pre-qualification, right? So where it's two of us, right? We don't have time or, or a model that is predicated upon, you know, building custom Salesforce CRM tools, scraping all this data, sending scouts and analysts out to, you know, meet every alumni who's leaving any big company, so on and so forth. And we also have like maybe certain points of views or personality that like 
for some people is awesome. And for other people, they're like, oh, that's fine. But like, I rather prefer an investor who was an engineer as opposed to a product manager, like whatever the type of thing is. And so I want to put content out there that as a secondary effect is sort of a, a magnet that attracts needles because I can't spend all my day in haystacks looking for those needles. And so if it helps three founders sort of say like, oh, wow, Hunter and Satya seem like people I'd want to talk to. And it helps three founders be like, ah, they seem like, okay, guys, but like either they're not interested in my area or like I disagree with him about this. And I don't think like, I don't, I wouldn't want him as the lead of my company. Like that's fine. I think too many people write with the idea that like, you know, you're afraid to not be, not be the right investor for somebody, which means like, how can you articulate who you're the right investor for? And I don't mean like, oh, you know, from like my political views or things like that. I mean, I'm sort of outspoken about those, but I, I'm happy to work with people who disagree with me. It's much more about like, I think a like company building and the trust and what you want in an investor. So I do think there's some pre-qualification that goes on. Um, and I think that's been helpful, but I don't think everybody, like, I don't think every investor should blog just because some do. I don't think every investor should tweet just because some do. I don't think every investor should, you know, do podcasts just because some do. I think people should decide what their playbook is and ultimately choose the things that they're excited to do that maybe they're going to do a, you know, enjoy, do a differentiated version of, because that's, that's what will resonate. Otherwise, if you're just checking off a box, like you won't achieve the goals that you, you sought out. Right. Yeah. I actually, I've seen so many podcasts, exact, a perfect example of like seven episodes and stop forever. And that's the exact thing. I mean, it's fine if you tested it out and you figured it out, okay, maybe that doesn't work for you, but also find the media and the channel, whatever it may be that you can do. I think the problem is, and it's, this is different when it's into, you know, the solo capitalists, maybe folks like us, who I think just, you know, started out online before they became investors. <laughs> but when you look at people who were sort of investors and then came, became, came online as personalities, I, I, th I just don't think like a lot of them have as much to say. And that's fine. But I think it's because they're like, they're trying to navigate this. Am I speaking for myself? Am I speaking on behalf of the firm? Do have we put a process in place? That is like essentially like the editing, you know, the ghostwriting process actually removes all the emotion, all the, you know, all the voice from something. And it turns out like a wonderful blog post, but it's, it's, it's flat, it's dry, it has no emotion, you know? And so, you know, it kind of is what it is, but, uh, you know, I, I, I will continue doing it <laughs> when I'm no longer a VC, I'll be blogging or some version of it. I'll tell you what though. See, you're a good looking guy. You, you, you work well in like the new, like visual social web. I have a face for blogging. And so like I am, Twitter is going to be the last social platform I'm ever relevant on because it's not going to be TikTok. Like anything that has a, turns the camera on, like I, I am just not going to have a following. So I hold on dearly to my Twitter and LinkedIn followers where, um, where I can be evaluated by by only you know 280 characters. I love that. I love that. Your focus has worked so far, obviously, Hunter. So I think you're doing okay. Well, it's also just compound growth, right? Like some of this stuff, you just start out early. People are like, "Oh, how did you get so many Twitter followers or whatever?" I was like, "Oh, I got on the platform early. I was working at like YouTube and Google, where people cared about, and then it's just like compound interest. You know, it's sort of, it's like, you know, I didn't have a lot. To, you know, it's like whether if you you don't have a lot to each day by the time you retire, you'll have a million dollars. Like that sounds like a horrible life, but I think I have the Twitter equivalent of that, which is like, oh, I just guess I just got two followers a day, you know, for for fifteen years or something. Yeah, I mean, go crazy." <laughs> For a long time, for a long time, maybe someday it's three or four. And yeah, group, group from there. Exactly. One of the things I want to talk about is Screen Door. Uh, obviously, it's a fifteen million dollar fund supporting emerging managers. How did that come together? Your involvement with that? People aren't familiar with that. Tell us a little more about what it is. Uh, it's look, it's new. 
and it has a lot, the burden of proof is on all of us, but I'm so excited about that. I think Screen Door has the potential to have greater impact and more longevity than even Homebrew does. And I'm obviously proud of Homebrew. So Screen Door is a coalition of, uh, to start with 10 VCs, uh, myself, Sacha, Kirsten Green at Forerunner, Chris Howard at Fuel, Chantel Garvey from Reach, uh, Charles Hudson, Kanye Kinder. I mean, I'm going to, if I keep going, then I'll, I'll stop at nine and I'll forget one person. But this way I can just say, yeah, Eva from Pika, like this way I can just say, you can go to the website and see them. And some really just amazing investors, a uh, bunch of endowments, foundations, so on and so forth, many of whom are named, a, a few who are behind the scenes. And what it is aimed to do is essentially back the next generation of homebrews. And specifically, um, the bet that the next generation of homebrews won't look like homebrew. And when I mean look like homebrew, I mean literally like will be uh, backed, will be, the GPs will be, be underrepresented um, uh, in venture. Now people say, well, what does that mean? And I think we've taken a very truthful approach, which is to say right now, uh, white men and Asian men are the only sort of like, quote unquote, well-represented you know, demographics and venture. So everybody else is unrepresented. And by the way, if you happen to fall into one of those categories and you still think that what your identity represents is underrepresented venture, we want to hear from you, right? So it's not just for you know, any one specific demographic, but it is about fundamentally you know, changing the nature of what venture looks like and starting that sort of, you know, uh, uh, accelerating that virtuous cycle of uh, the types of company those people back, which is not quote unquote diversity mandate, but uh, it's you know proven that diverse teams have diverse networks, so on and so forth. So I call it an it's an economic vehicle with a societal mandate. And so we've raised north of fifty million dollars to go to be sort of up to ten percent of a new emerging VCs. Let's call it like Fund One, you know, like it's or your first kind of you know fund where you're turning it into a firm, right? So it doesn't only have to be a Fund One. Maybe you had an angel fund before, whatever, whatever, whatever. And in addition to the capital, what we're trying to build is you know, a collective, a community, all 10 of the GPs who are also investors in the fund. There's no carry structure. None of us are getting capital for managing this. And we have uh, one full-time staff member now who's helping to run it. But, you know, we are putting, you know, sort of time, you know, ca- our own capital and against this. And and yeah, so it's, we, we announced it in June. It's, it's hard to believe that it's only sort of six months old. Um, we have made a few commitments. We haven't announced them yet. Probably early next year, you know, we wanted to sort of get to a critical mass because I think, you know, people always say, Charles Hudson, I think always says this is like, you know, people aren't diverse, like teams are diverse, groups are diverse. And so I think we want to show, you know, sort of the first half dozen or whatever it looks like to sort of, you know, start to share what we're doing with the world. I think that ultimately the reason it came together so quickly was a little bit of the investor, the LP confidence in us as managers that we were closer to the ground. And so that we would probably have a better sense of who kind of new emerging managers were when especially they didn't have maybe previous track records or didn't work at large funds. And I think it solved a problem for them, which is they know that there's incredible, you know, alpha and upside in emerging managers, but man, their model, which usually doesn't write small checks to small funds, right? They're, they're deploying 25 million, 50 million, $100 million uh, at a time. Like that's worked really well you know, for them in venture. And so they were smart enough to know like, well, we can't just like creating a sidecar fund. That's like the diversity fund is, you know, sort of an, you know, it's, it's, it's a economic trivializing. So I think, you, you know, doing it as a pass through with, you know, outsourcing their judgment to us works really well. And, and this is a little inside baseball and then, I, then I'll shut up and I'll let you ask another question, but it's something I'm specifically proud of. All of the money, the 50 plus million dollars, and I think we might, you know, there, there's been a lot of demand since we announced it, so we might raise a little bit more. But again, similar to Homebrew, 
let's raise to a strategy, not raise to demand, because we have to return, you know, multiples of this capital. Um, none of this money came from sort of, you know, philanthropy earmarked for diversity, so on and so forth. So it's all additive. It's capital that's flowing to these new emerging managers that previously would have been flowing to a traditional manager pool, right? So we are taking a slice out of, I like to imagine that like, this makes the most mediocre current pattern matching manager um, get passed over and we can direct it towards some, you know, more spectacular, high potential, hardworking, committed young firms. Yeah, so that's that's what we're doing. And I think over time, it has the chance, not, not just by ourselves, you know, it's a coalition. I think there's obviously, we're not the only person working on this, but I don't know why we couldn't be the largest committed pool of capital, you know, ongoing to, you know, emerging diverse managers. And then, you know, you ask the question, well, the ones who continue co- succeeding and growing, like, should Screen Door give up that zero to 10% or should we hold it and keep growing with them? And if you do the math on that, then I don't know why we couldn't be one of the more aggressive and enthusiastic and supporting, you know, sort of LPs for emerging managers. And so we'll see where it goes, not to, you know, put walk before run, cart before horse, whatever the cliche is, but but it's something I'm really proud about. And it's an open application process. So, uh, you know, people can go and look and click through the URL and give us their information and, and, you know, we'll sort of get back to them and so on and so forth. I'm hoping also to create, like, create some content and community and other stuff. We, you know, we got a lot of inbound around like, hey, I'm trying, I'm thinking about becoming a VC. Can I talk to you? And we're like, we really don't have the capacity to do that one-on-one. But, you know, for the managers that we were right about, for people we have to pass on, right? Because we have to pass on lots of people. I'd still love to provide value to them ongoing. Often we're going to be wrong and they're going to be amazing VCs. So it's probably to our advantage anyway. And for people who are like thinking about it, I'd love to be able to do things at scale for them. So maybe we can also go upstream and think about pipeline, you know, in addition to to writing the check itself. But uh, as you can tell by my long answer, I'm just really so excited about what it can do. And, And like I said, I'm not shy about thinking that it might outlast, you know, might outlast and outscale homebrew by design. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to bring it up for that exact reason. I knew you'd, you'd have some context around that. And I think it's interesting for people who are trying to get an venture with their own funds. And we, so even at, Vital, at Vitalize, with Vitalize Angels, there's a large portion of our people in that group that they want to get into venture, start building a track record through Vitalize Angels, then either join a fund or start their own. And so we're trying to facilitate that as well as we think of it at Vitalize, because we know that makes a much bigger impact. And anything we alone can do at Vitalize. And so anyone supporting the ecosystem, any capacity like, like Black VC and different ways of getting into venture or helping support people in venture, I love that. And especially when there's actual capital involved. Is that real? Well, that's the thing. You know, we originally like, well, maybe we can mentor. And then you talk to people and they're like, I have plenty of mentors. I have plenty of office hours. I have, I don't have enough check writers. And so, you know, it became that. And like, I used to do a bunch of like different, you know, diversity and venture panels when I'd guess, get guests to do them. And I'd be sort of like the token white guy. And like, it was funny because, you know, everybody would go through these stories, uh, the panelists about sort of raising their first funds or getting into venture. And they all had these like, and they're all at the back end, very successful, but the front end was very hard in, in a lot of cases. And I would go last, I'd sort of be like, well, you know, I'm white, 6'2", heterosexual, like went to Stanford Business School and worked at Google. So as you can imagine, I had uh, tremendous difficulty getting into venture. You know, I benefited from a lot of the sort of status quo, and I'm happy to no longer benefit from it, you know? So try my best to sort of recognize that, uh, send the ladder back down, whatever they talk about, and then reach a hand down, you know, and like you said, with a check as well. Yeah, I love that. And I know we're almost out of time here. So I just want to ask one quick question and maybe a long answer, but up to you, depending on how much time you have. But with the time you spent at Google, nine years or so, Google and then Homebrew as well now, 
I'm curious on how the Google time you spent there impacted your thinking of the world, thinking of how you wanted to run your fund. I know you mentioned how you know, focused you are uh, with exactly what you wanted from the firm. You're not trying to expand to other models, but how did that time at Google impact your thinking? So I spent about a dozen years on sort of the quote unquote building side of the world, three years at this startup building a virtual world. Now we'd call the metaverse before Google and then nine years at Google, mostly on AdSense uh, for three years and then YouTube for six. That was all creator economy stuff. It was all pro- you know, product management, learning, you know, sort of straddling the, the business and technical sides of this stuff. I think it is obviously you know, the sort of the track record, the reputation, all that stuff helped us launch you know, later in our careers into a very competitive venture landscape. I think first and foremost, what it gave me though was the confidence to run my own playbook, to sort of say, look, my goal isn't to be, you know, first round capital 2.0 or junior version of Greylock or whatever, like we're going to be the best version of homebrew. And I think Sacha, who also has a deep product background, in addition to a venture background, we often talk about, I think we, we approach this as product thinkers and system thinkers. And so, you know, it's funny because one of the questions I always get is like from new managers is, well, what are the things you did wrong initially that you would redo differently? And I'm like, oh, like nothing structurally. Because we knew all these things were connected. We knew that you can't sort of make disconnected decisions about your check size, your portfolio management, your support, you know, the, 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 your, your infrastructure, the, the brand, who you raise money from. Like, and some of those choices expand or limit others. And so I think we, we've always taken kind of like a product-centric view to homebrew that has benefited us. I'm sure it creates its own blind spots and so on and so forth. But like, I definitely think you know, I can attribute some of our success to sort of the, sort of that training. And then there's from a personal development standpoint, I couldn't have done this years ago because I was too control oriented. I was too, I had too much ego. Like I wanted to, people to know I was smart type of thing. It would have been hard for me to sort of stand behind the founders. Although I guess, you know, in product roles, I, I normally sort of like supported the CEO or supported the, you know, sort of the founder in, the, in that capacity. So I, I attribute that. And I've written about this too. Like, I think that had to do with actually having a kid and, you know, I don't treat, I don't treat the the founder relationship as a paternal one, obviously, um, that would be trivializing it. But like the idea that like I look at my kid, I'm like, I can only help her become the best version of what she's going to be. And obviously, like there's guardrails on that. I, you know, if she's really going to hurt herself, I need to jump in, you know. But I think it's similar for, for companies. You're only going to help them as an investor become the best version of what they're going to be. And most of the time, what you're doing is coaching and allowing them to build their muscles. You're not, you know, pushing them off the bench and doing the doing the the, the squats for them or whatever, because that's not how companies get built. And so I think it's a combination of a little bit of practical experience and a little bit of like life experience and maturity that you know gave us the chance to, to build Homebrew. Yeah. And I know we're, we're out of time here, so we'll, we'll end it there. But thank you for the time. Where is the best place people can uh, reach out to you and contact you if they want to as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hunter at homebrew.co and all of our contact information is on the homebrew.co website. I'm also hunterwalk.com and basically username hunterwalk at most every social platform. <laughs> Hunter walked out everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you so much for the time today. All right. Thank you. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.